Hello and welcome to What the Lux with me, Fred Moore. And me, Anand Sharma. Together we lead Matter of Form, brand and experience design consultancy headquarters in London. And this is a podcast that calls time on tired ideas of luxury. And alongside industry luminaries and thought leaders, we explore what truly defines category-leading products and experiences. Keith Vinson has achieved more in his life than seems humanly possible. From a childhood in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, to running one of the most important companies in the world when it comes to conservation and protecting its most significant, wild, untamed places. He is often to be found in various parts of the globe in the company of presidents and other assorted dignitaries. But I suspect he's still most at home in the bush in Africa, telling stories and surrounded by the landscape, wildlife and communities that he adores. Keith is CEO of Wilderness. Started by two guides in 1983, Wilderness is now Africa's leading conservation and hospitality company with over 3,000 passionate employees. The company is at the forefront of using tourism to protect, explore and expand the world's most remote places. Today, they're preserving nearly 6 million acres of land but have a hugely ambitious mission to double the amount of land under conservation in the next decade. They are not only pioneers and innovators in using travel as a force for good, but are also, in our view, ahead of the curve in offering their guests something that is increasingly demanded by the new breed of traveller. Comfort and service, yes, but an experience that is unfenced, untamed and unpredictable. For Matter of Form, it's been a privilege to work with Keith and his team on the recent Wilderness rebrand and new digital experience. Many of our listeners will already know the famous camps that Wilderness owns and operates, such as Dumatau and Mombo, both in Botswana. But I suspect, in the years to come, many will know a lot more about Wilderness the company and Wilderness the brand. Keith, hello. It's a massive honour to have you here in person in London, and thank you. Hi, Fred. Nice to be here, and congratulations to your team for an amazing job. Well done. Uh, thank you, Keith. That is, um, that's really appreciated. It's been a wonderful project, um, and um, all kudos as well to your team. They are incredible. So I guess, Keith, for all that grandiose introduction, I should also say you're pretty much at home in a London bar as well. The last time I saw you was in a Shoreditch um, novelty ball pit at about 1am. Um, have you recovered? How are you? I'm extremely well, thank you very much. Um, as you will aware, is, I, I like to have as much fun in town as I have out of town in, in the wild. But Keith, you've got a really interesting background. Can you just tell us a little bit about your childhood and your life pre-wilderness? Look, I've been incredibly fortunate in the sense that you know, when I was a young boy, around the ages of five, my parents were friends with a, with a real hardcore bushman. This, this guy had come up from the Second World War, obviously having been demobbed, came into Zimbabwe. And this, this old guy loved the bush and took me under his wing. And so and, you know, every weekend and every school holidays, uh, the two of us used to disappear into the bush together. Two things that were fantastic about him. One is his intimate knowledge of the bush, which he imparted you know, in, in such a way that left a massive impression on me. And the, the other side of the coin is, is that he was the hardest working and taskmaster I've ever come across in my life. So from a very young age, he sort of taught me the, the, the beauty and the, I want to say the joy of being outside in, in the wild areas, but also taught me an awful lot about work ethic. So to dream about the wild areas and to go and do it was beaten into me by this this old guy because he certainly didn't spare the rod, <laughs> so, which in that time of the I deserved. And we were very privileged to be able to spend time in the bush with not only this old guy, the governor of Charlie Page, and and then also with a bunch of my friends of the same age. And you know there were three or four of us that 
were with them all the time, every school holidays. It was certainly a, a bucket load more fun than being at home. <laughs> Amazing. And it wasn't the, the, the journey from that incredible childhood and those experiences wasn't necessarily a linear line because there was a lot of political trouble in that re- in your region growing up and you were in the army for that. It was obviously a very unfortunate time of life to grow up on one, on the one hand. But the, the other side of the coin is that it certainly never stopped us from being out there and having fun. I, I think the, the, the hardest part was, on the one hand, there was this immense change for the good. I mean, from a point of view, is that I'm of the age group that you got to the end and the change happened and it's now like... Oh my God, what do I do? And you know, my, my dad being a good staunch Irishman, having come home, he gave me seven days to leave. <laughs> so my reputation obviously preceded me. You know, it was it was an amazing time was, what do we do? And you know, obviously been so much time in the bush. Uh, you know, friends of mine and I decided to go to the Zambezi Valley in Zimbabwe uh, and basically clear out the area of, of landmines and and Let's start work. And, you know, this was obviously in the very, very early days. Quarries were sort of a little bit known. Hang on, so you had to literally clear landmines from from the bush in order to run safaris? Yeah, the whole area in northern Zimbabwe had been mined. The fun part of it was that, yeah, you had to be a little bit careful. You didn't really know what you were stepping into. But you were stepping into the most unbelievable wildlife area in between, you know, the Zambezi Valley minor pools etc so you know from from that perspective it was it, it was you were exploring and it was incredibly basic and you, know, you can say it was tough and rough and but at that age it was actually yeah, you know i remember taking the first guests out and you know this was sort of the days before licenses and what did you have to do and there was certainly no indemnity form it was like you, you off you go to the bush and good luck and, and you had a wooden bench on the back of a really a, a series two land rover which wasn't very comfortable and you know from that perspective following animals on foot you really you really got to know your customer and you really got to know the bush and you know you literally had a one-man pup tent and not only were you the guide you were the cook which by the way i was never a very good cook <laughs> but by sheer accident in reality this was the field i, I got into you know so was certainly wasn't by design, other other than spending my entire childhood in the in the wild and knew I loved it. And even to this day it's you know, my happiest my happiest days in the world are, are sitting out in the bush or taking people out to the bush and enjoying yourself. But how did you get involved with wilderness? Was that a happy accident? How did that start? So you know Interesting. So in the beginning of 1984, I moved from the Zambezi Valley up to Victoria Falls. And being there, in those days, there were six guides based out of Victoria Falls. And we used to see guides coming across from Botswana. And obviously, I met the, the, the two founding guides of, of Wilderness because they used to sort of start a trip in Joburg and finish a trip in, in Victoria Falls. So, you know, like all guides, when, you, when you're in town, there was like literally one bar and, and all the guards when they were on days off were in that bar. So we'd swap stories around uh, who's been doing what and where have you been and, you know, where's the next exploration route. So it was, a, it was an enormous amount of fun. So did the, um, the 20-something-year-old Keith, fast forward 40 years, would he have imagined he would be the chief executive of a company 
as large and prominent as wilderness? Would that have been going through your head? I mean, I was driven when I was nine years old, making National Park. My parents used to take me to a certain area down in the southeastern corner every year in the August September school holidays. And at nine years old, I, I told my dad that one day I, I wanted to own a piece of that land. Well, that dream came true in 1994. And you know, so the desire was to build a lodge on it. You know, it was like, I think, a realization of a dream. And actually, it was my father who reminded me of it. But obviously, it was deep-seated in the back of my head. But I mean, literally from the late 80s, tourism really started to develop in places like Botswana and Zimbabwe and Namibia, in particular in the southern parts of Africa. There was a few parts in South Africa I mean, the Sabi Sands was highly still in those days. So, you know, from a, from a time of, I want to say from about 88, there, there was immense growth. You know, if you take in Victoria Falls, all of a sudden there was a whole bunch more of us and there was, we were getting into other areas and how do we do it? And we sort of linked up between the different countries because there was owners of, of let's call it quarry camp stroke, mobile camps, stroke walking trips in each country and actually wilderness was like a, a let's call it a marketing umbrella company uh, it was only through 95 we all got together and actually sort of my main entrance into wilderness was through my wife she was one of the first of our four uh, ladies who were doing reservations in Johannesburg and she came up to Victoria Falls I'm going to tell you a funny story is, is that Girls were a rare commodity in Victoria Falls in the late 80s and early 90s. So when a new girl came to town, uh, you were certainly on safari. You were just looking for a different species. <laughs> Obviously, I met, I met her and she, she was running reservations for wilderness. And then I actually did quite a lot of training for the junior staff in, in Botswana because I was, I was licensed to carry heavy weapons as a guide in Zimbabwe. And in the early days in Botswana, they hadn't done any rifle training or, or sort of real bush training as we were trying to move away from, let's call it expatriate guides into training local guides. Yeah. So actually, before I joined Wilderness, let's call it officially, is I spent a lot of time training uh, young local guides in Botswana. Yeah, I mean that, and that was also a bachelor of fun. So I got to know Botswana. And, you know, any guide, you, you sort of know your own turf really well. So to go into new, new territories and new terrain and new habitat is immensely, you know, it's educational and you learn, you see different things, you learn different cultures, and that, that's hugely rewarding in its own right. So, that, you know, that, that was my introduction to, to wilderness properly. And then, you know, from that point of view, it sort of just morphs into, all right, let's get busy. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about what it's become. I mean, it, uh, your recollections are amazing. I'm always struck, actually, when I meet you also, how you put such a positive frame on everything, because you've actually probably seen some stuff that's less pleasing in your life, especially around the destruction of wildlife and communities, etc. But it's wonderful the way you see the positive in everything. But 2022, let's fast forward to wilderness now. Um, it has a really pioneering and category-leading conservation tourism model. Can you explain this model and how the business works here in 2022? I think firstly, fundamentally, is that it's critical that, let's say, you, you have, I want to say, a guide mentality of the experiential stuff. And that's been the sort of underpin of everything we've done is, is, is making sure that, first and foremost, people are buying an experience. And, you know, 
you imagine our first series of camps between the sort of late 80s and early 90s, we were very, very basic. And we always concentrated on the experiential side. And, you know, we great believers that people want the experience with wildlife. And actually, your guides are spending eight or nine hours a day with the customer. So that's the underpin of everything we do. So as you can imagine, in the growth formation, the guides are always so hungry to go to the next place. Fundamentally, the guides actually lead that way. So you have a guide talking to a customer, and they'll say, well, have you been to Rwanda and seen the gorillas? And the guide might not have been there, but the guide is so desperate to get there, he'll convince the customers to come with him and go there. And then, and of course, one thing leads to another thing, and you end up building lodges there. So it, it certainly was driven probably more from the ground up than from, let's call it a grand design down. So the, the hunger of our, of our people on the ground to expand their knowledge and then share that knowledge and share that experience with customers has driven this business to where it stands today. I mean, you've grown also to have this astonishing number of staff. Can you tell us about the 3,000 people or so who, who work for Wilderness? At the end of the day, it's one massive family. And you know, to me, the, uh, probably the biggest burden is, is that you, you've got such a massive responsibility to look after your up-and-coming family members and, and the staff. You know, this tourism business is 100% driven by people. You, know, you, can, you can build the finest lodges. At the, at the end of the day, any discerning traveler cares more about the service delivery and you know africa is such a beautiful place to deliver service but the people themselves are so incredibly friendly and and they, they love to learn is is magnificent so i mean, I mean my my oldest employee i mean this he started working for me in 1982 he was my tracker and he still works for me today i wouldn't call him one of my children but he's definitely my brother yeah. you know and the joy of having people like that that work for you is that they are equally committed to the, the grand mission then as we are. And, you know, so there's no difference of how can we do it better and constantly thinking, how can we do it better? And, you know, I think from a point of view is, is the joy of, of taking kids out of our children and wellness program. In the early 90s, mid 90s, you know, HIV orphans was massive in Africa. And we, we could see this, and we could see it at the village level where kids, you know, both their mother and father had died of HIV. So what could we do about it? And actually, you know, we started this foundation in, in conjunction with Paul Newman and the Hole in the Wall Gang. And um, he was out in safari with us, actually, and we were sitting around the fire at Bombo talking that we needed to do something about it. And he actually gave us the capital to start off this program. And if you think today, we've got people that have started off in the school with HIV orphans, gone through school. I mean, obviously, our first task was to get them back into school. Then a bunch of them through university. You know, today we've got accountants, we've got actuaries, we've got pilots, we've got, you've got cat managers that are running seven-star lodges and, and, and literally all through this program. I mean, so the, the main sense of pride of, of having these kids and, and actually in this process of rebranding was empower, educate, protect. Now, if you empower and educate, the protection of these vast areas 
stuff naturally. So do you physically have to do the protective part? But actually what happens is if you go through the first two steps, they become the custodians of that land because that's the opportunity for their children in the future. You know, you're so wildly ambitious on this conservation front. I completely understand how that program and that framework of empowerment and education creates something that's really sustainable over generations. But just for people, how does it also work on the ground? I mean, how do you protect the wildlife and the land actually sort of practically on the ground? Are you employing people to tread around and protect it with guns? How, how does it actually work? You know, between working with the local uh, national parks authorities, so, I mean, obviously from a, let's call it an anti-poaching perspective, yeah, if you've got armed guards, etc., we work hand in hand with the local authority, be it national parks, be it the police, be it the army in some areas. You know, from a perspective of there needs to be this handholding in order to be able to protect. So, I mean, there's obviously some areas that are harder to do than others, but the connection between the two has to be a partnership between the national parks authorities and ourselves. And it's a case of, as, you, as you're aware, that a lot of the areas we operate in of third world country, they don't necessarily have the financial resources to, to enable to uh, protect the nth degree. That's where we can play a vital role. So between the company investing for the protector, and you know, the, the beautiful part about our business is being up there in these wild areas and with the village commitments in the children of the wilderness programs, building clinics, building schools, our customers are, are, are enthralled to actually donate. But at the same time, that's quadrupled by incredibly generous customer base. You mentioned there, which I think is interesting, you've got some amazing investors who are really supportive of what you're doing. And I think probably share your zeal for uh, conservation and improvements. You have this incredibly ambitious plan to double land. Sounds like we were talking before that you might have already done that. Um, where are you heading next within Africa and perhaps outside? I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Africa leads ecotourism business model and practices in the world. You know, I've, I've, I've had the joy of traveling extensively in, in Latin America uh, and Asia. And there's, there's so much product and experience in so many of these places. To be able to share our ideals and our actually the knowledge around our business model just makes an enormous amount of sense. And, you know, I'm particularly interested in the rainforest side. The protection there is needed for the survival of the planet. And, you know, if you take conservation 20 years ago and conservation today, it's, it's chalk and cheese. But also, you know, where does it get to the point where you, you get to over-tourism? I, I mean, I, I'm so anti-over-tourism because it's ugly. And the damage it does for um, wild areas and the wild animals themselves is, is tremendous. I mean, it's the talk of the tourism world. I mean, look what's happening in Venice today. I mean, the same thing, they've, you know, they've inputted taxes to stop people coming in, turn cruise ships away. The same's happening in places like New Orleans. The, you know, there's some of the national parks now that are, are starting to say, well, which, which model should we be in? I mean, wildernesses always try to follow a low volume, high impact. And, the, and, we, and we've done that very well because... You could argue that we don't play nicely with droughts. Having said that, there's, there's a premium that can be charged for the privacy and the privilege of being on a large piece of land with only two or three vehicles. 
presumably also these people you're you're slowly changing these people who sometimes are quite powerful and influential into converts to the cause it's it's also when you're discussing with government the challenge is quite often they just want more and more tourists obviously tourists generate revenue if, if i use that rwanda as, as, as a great example i mean rwanda in the early 2000s uh, and even through to the group uh, actually we built in 2014 and and actually the the switchover was doubling the price of the gorilla permit there's 96 permits a day and it's you know the permit was 750 dollars went to up to 1500 dollars now previously the accommodation available was at about 150 dollars a day so you had people coming in for two days into rwanda to see the gorillas previously i mean we were the first that came in and and, and built a serious high-end luxury lodge called Basati. And, you know, if you take this year, Basati won the best safari lodge in the world. So, you know, that was a nice feather in the cap. But what it did do was it encouraged my competitors to invest a further $100 million in the country on, on other high-end properties. So what it did do was from people coming in and, and spending two days in the country, and, and let's say they were spending on average, say, $500 a day. Today, people are spending seven days in, in Rwanda, spending a couple of thousand dollars a day. So now the impact that has at, on the, let's call it the educated staff you need at that level. So you need to up the education and the training of your staff, chefs and uh, housekeepers and waiters, etc. And at the same time, you lengthen the stay in the country. Now that makes the impact on the local GDP of the country. So, I mean, if you go back in time in Botswana, where, you know, obviously you're competing against the producer of the, the world's biggest dump of diamonds, the tourism sector was producing about 0.1% of the GDP. Today, it's, it's producing about 48 4.9% of the GDP. Having said that, it's the second biggest private employer in the country today. So there's another benefit of ecotourism is that 90% of your employees are rural workers versus urban workers. So to give opportunity outside into the rural areas is actually a lot more valuable than creating more and more urban jobs. So that in a country actually gives you enormous, let's call it, influence with the local communities, the government, and actually the success and creating a successful business. Okay. So everyone becomes a winner, actually without them having to come to the city to find employment. I guess there's a couple of obvious critiques of the tourism model. We could talk air travel, we could talk supply chain. What do you do at Wilderness that really sets the stamp on that, that shows that you're minimizing your impact, be it carbon, um, be it other externalities? As technology grew, as you can imagine, in the beginning, we had diesel generators to, to make electricity. Uh, through trial and error and, and some expensive, you know, we, we learned how to do it. And long be this is still long before climate change became a big issue. So we actually created the framework which I think we can also be very proud of, of how do you do this responsibly? And, and I think that was the fun of it. Uh, and, and like I say, we made some beautiful blunders in that process. But having said that, there was always the desire to do it better. I think the beautiful part where we stand today, I mean, I'll put it in context for you. 
is five years ago, we built a 1,200 1, kilowatt solar plot for Mombo. Now, that cost a million and a half dollars five years ago. So if you take, we were, we were losing, using about 1,600 liters of diesel a day. Now we, we use probably two or 300 liters a month. Now, the only reason the generator runs is you want to, you want to start it each day for, and run for about an hour just to make sure it works in case you need it. So it's a backup, it's a backup service. And then if you take, you know, we rebuilt Domatau in during COVID in 20, we put it again at 1,200 kilowatt solar plant in and the cost today is 750,000. So not only is it half price, the actual technology is so much better, the battery technology is so much better. You know, as we move from lead acid batteries now into lithium ion batteries. So is all this gonna help and play an incredible role in us reducing our carbon footprint? hundred percent. Keith, I feel um, we've talked about wellness as a, as a business, the, the 6,000 hectares under conservation, the, the ambition to double. This feels almost inconsequential in context of what we talked about, those big themes. But just going to um, the customer and to luxury, you know, at Master Form, we, we love to debate the often sort of stagnant and pompous notions of luxury. But these are your customer, uh, luxury travellers. They are the people who will um, help you in your ambition to double this land under conservation and more. Um, what does luxury mean to you? You know, it, it was really interesting. Uh, uh, one of our partners years ago, uh, we were starting a project in the Seychelles to renovate an island in the Seychelles, an island called North Island. And he came up with this concept of barefoot luxury. And actually, I mean, led by this, this guy, Andy Payne, and, and he said, I want to create barefoot luxury. Is that how can you be in your most comfortable zone with all the, the joys of luxury? Now, what is luxury? Is it, is it this beautiful, sweet, unbelievable sort of Michelin star food or wine? What is it? From a wilderness perspective, the way we chose to go was, uh, how can we deliver, obviously, an amazing lodge with comfortable beds, great food, great service, great wine? Those are all a, a given. The actual luxury is in the luxury of experience. And I think we're in a better place today than, than we were 10 years ago, where, I mean, luxury was, how can I be materially spoiled? Today, luxury is, how can I be experientially spoiled? Obviously, talking to most well-heeled customers in the world, they can afford anything. What they really value is being in wild areas with amazing experience, with amazing service. It, it's it's pieces of everything, but the premium comes in being in in wild wild areas by yourself. That's where the real premium luxury comes today. So, of course, like I say, it doesn't underestimate what you need to deliver from a food level, from a hospitality level, from a housekeeping level. It's a very fine line because if if you if you want to be casual. You've got to be unbelievably good at delivery. And that's pulled off by people. Well, I guess you've got the luxury of staff who've been there forever, which, which most hotels don't have that. Correct. And, you know, it's about the characters of the individuals. So we take a great deal of effort in the camp not to box in the service delivery from the guides or from the camp staff. But we also expect their own characters to be imprinted on people's minds. Because 
that's the introduction of local culture of these amazing people we have working with us, actually interacting with the customer. And you know, the, the interesting part is, obviously read hundreds and hundreds of feedback forms from our customers. And, and actually, nine times out of 10, and, and probably more than that, but they will say, the camp was wonderful, the food was wonderful, the, food, the drinks were wonderful, but Joe or Susan something was spectacular. So to me, it's, a, it's a, again, it's the person who handles the experiential side, either makes or breaks a pure luxury holiday. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Do you think technology still has a role to play in a business as, as human and experiential as wilderness? No, absolutely. It, it's definitely technology that's behind the curtain. You, you don't want to put technology in the face of the customer. They are out there to be in the wild areas when they're coming with us. Okay? Having said that, you know, if you take the ease of communication between, say, our offices and the camps today, we, we, so our ability to get information to wild, wild, remote areas is, is so much better. So the accuracy of the information getting to the camp staff, i.e. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, uh, one, one's a vegan, one's a vegetarian, and the, and the son wants a steak. Our ability to provide a, a service because of communications is really up there. So that's, that's played a big role. And then the other side of the coin is, is, you know, we've got hundreds of agents around the world making reservations, us being able to talk directly to the agent, talk to the, the, the consumer themselves. In, in from a, let's call it a booking and a reservations technology is playing a, a bigger and bigger role. I mean, if, if, you, if you look at the transparency today in what's available on, on the web, okay? And if you take the, what the message you try to send to the world through your website or through Instagram or through Facebook, and, and let's call it the PR and marketing of the business and the actual messaging it. Now, I, I think there's two major pluses for it. The first part is one they share just simple exposure. The second thing is it becomes a lot more transparent to the end consumer, the person who's paying for these these unbelievable trips. I mean, if you think about the bulk of our trips, it's the same it's the same price as you buying a car, unseen. Effectively, the more transparent and information that's out in the public eye, the better informed the, the, the consumer is going to be able to be to choose the right destinations for their holiday. I mean, the, the one thing, if you, if you look at the, the world today, the most precious days of your life are your days on leave. And the responsibility for you is to deliver an amazing experience and holiday on people's most valuable days of their life. Immense. So technology is definitely going to play a role, and, and more and more every day. But would you ever experiment with the metaverse and giving people a virtual experience before they came in that selection process could you ever see yourselves doing that because i think you are surprisingly innovative when it comes to technology and the b2b platform you've built we've talked about it so it's, it's it's sort of a concept that how much do you want to show i think showing some is is got value but the let's put the the awe of seeing a customer's face when they get off the vehicle from the airstrip and walk into it a camp and say, oh my God, I would quite like to keep that element of adventure. Yeah, I, I find myself conflicted on this as well because 
Uh, I think the best experiences are ones where you've spoken to someone or heard about someone who's had an experience with, say, wilderness. And just blind trust and turning up not knowing that much is, is the best. Fascinating. So in your years as a guide and an expert, what's been the most amazing thing you've witnessed while exploring the wilderness, if it's possible to highlight one experience? I mean, I, I sort of, this is a sort of maybe two-part answer, is, is that there's no doubt the joy I get of being able to see something happen in the wild, be it wild dogs or deer or lion or leopard or elephants doing something crazy, and try and see it through the guest eyes. You know, sitting on a vehicle with, with, a, with a guest and seeing the, the absolute joy on their faces, it, it makes my life very rewarding to, to feel like it's, it's like a shared joy seeing other people enjoy on sightings that I've had millions of. I mean, I think right now, and it was relatively recent, you know, I'm fortunate enough to, to have now taken my grandson on his first trip to the bush. And, you know, you're sitting with this little three-year-old boy on your, on your lap and you're driving around and he, he thinks he's driving because he's standing on my lap steering, you know, steering into the middle of nowhere. And being able to take him out there and show him what I've spent my life doing and see it through a kid's eyes is, is definitely the most rewarding thing I've ever done. So, Keith, um, yeah, like I say, so we ask all of our guests the same four questions before they leave. So, uh, number one, what irritates you most about your industry? I think it's a case of everyone's always trying to outcompete each other. Now, I think obviously competition is always incredibly healthy. Having said that, is, is, is that the more we can work together, the bigger impact we can make on land and conservation. Now, I mean, I've got many, t- many competitors that are very good friends of mine, and we work very closely together. I think as, as industry leaders, we've got a, a responsibility to work closely together for the greater good, beyond our own company. And I, I would like to see, I want to say, more interaction or and closer cooperation in areas where we shouldn't be competing. You know, if it's pure conservation, job creations, et cetera, and, and many of them are, and like I say, you know, if you look at our main competitors, I can pick up and find the CEOs of any one of them and say, this is something we need to do together. We've got a shared boundary what do we do to fix it? But I think from a continent-wide perspective, we could do more. You're relentlessly positive, but you're also deeply responsible. You, you do more than almost anyone I've ever met to address the problems in the world. But what most concerns you about the world we're leaving the next generation? My age group and older have left the planet in a pretty poor place. There's, there's areas that I can really proudly say that are better today than they were 15 years ago when, I, when we stepped in and, and started to run them. But those are pockets. I think the first thing is let's own up to we didn't do it all right. The reverse side of that is we've never been in a more exciting place than we are right now. And I think COVID actually gives you, it helps. This generation, if you think Generation Z and Y and the millennials, they care an awful lot more. Their ability to learn at 10 times the speed we could when we were their age. The technology that's available to do things better and more uh, cleaner and more efficient is on their doorstep. I'm actually, I'm more excited about the future of the planet today than I was 20 years ago. So our responsibility is to open doors of opportunity and potentially be mentors and with a little bit of guidance is let this generation go. And I think then there's no stopping and doubling and doubling and doubling the land under the influence of conservation 
I actually think it's going to be easier. The other side of that point is there's be, never been more money available for the protection of wild biomes and landscape. So you've got the perfect storm. You've got money and you've got young, educated people that are hungry to do it. An amazingly positive view of the world, the one we need, I think. Um, that is great. Penultimate question, Keith. If you had to give up your job tomorrow, what would you do? And having spent a lot of time in Wanky National Park um, as, a, as a kid and, a, and as an adult, we, we pump in the areas. We've got two areas there, Likwasha and Makololo. We've got 22 boreholes that need constant attention to pump water for the wildlife. So I'm going to go and build myself a tent <laughs> in the, and uh, I'm going to become what we call the pump attendant, okay, and drive from borehole to borehole every day <laughs> and make sure they're working to pump water for the wildlife. Well, Keith, last, last question. Um, so what's the most exciting thing for you in the next five years? What is there still left to do for you? You've done so much, but what's left to do? There's something that we're starting today is actually getting land and restoring it in the form of reforestation, protecting against afforestation, and restocking it with wildlife. Now, this is the start of a journey that will, one, outlive my working career, and two, outlive my natural life. I think that is so vital and so important that there's going to be a big chunk of my time that's been concentrating in that particular area of the business as a whole. And, you know, to me, it's how do we protect this landscape? And it's full landscape. That's like from the source of a river to the end of the river and, and the habitat around that. You, know, you can't just protect, let's say, the middle section and somebody dams up the river ahead of you, you know, or above you. So that's, to me, is, is I want to say, it's firstly, it's absolutely critical for, for the planet. You know, if we're going to truly make an impact on climate change, well, we, we're going to need to plant an awful lot more forest. I mean, obviously now's the time. I mean, you know, COP's just finished. And, you know, from, from a perspective of this is just going to build, I want to say, momentum. So, I mean, for the last year, my partner and I have, have embarked quite heavily onto that side of the business. So between sort of our day-to-day job and in the tourism and our normal day-to-day jobs, you know, this, this area is something that's very dear to the core mission of this of wilderness. So from, from that perspective, you know, that's a journey which might only develop tourism opportunities in five years' time, seven years' time, 15 years' time, 20 years' time. But what it will do is allow runways for the generation of tourism opportunities for the next 25 or 30 years. That's the ultimate tick in my book. If, if we can really make a, a decent head start, you know, it goes back to, we've got a single mission, double under the land under the influence of conservation and do it again and again and again. And that was a, had a lot to do with why did we want to refresh the brand? Because there is a slight change in mission. Not that the previous mission was much different, but actually this we've got to do on a bigger scale. So in order to do that, I want to say that Brand Refresh gave all 3,000 of our staff this burst of energy. And it's been truly uh, amazing and inspirational to see the joy on our staff's face, to feel like they, they're part of something that they've planned and they're part of this 
okay, now we better get busy now. That's, it's been very, very cool to be part of it. You know, I've immensely privileged and proud to yeah, play a, a very little role in, in, in being able to take these next steps. Uh, Keith, that, that was um, inspiring and engaging in equal measure. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, thanks for coming in. Cool. Absolutely, Fred. And, you know, if I could just say to you and Bernard and to your entire team, it's been spectacular working with you guys. Thanks for helping us with that inspiration. It was a sheer joy watching professionals at work on stuff that I normally fire myself from. It's turned out way beyond our expectations. So thank you for that to your entire team. Oh, thank you. And that will, that's made my day and that'll make everyone else's day when I tell them you said that. So thanks, Keith. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Fred. Thanks so much for listening. This has been What The Lux. You can find us on socials at Matter of Form and drop us any questions or comments on Twitter using the hashtag WhatTheLux. And if you're a luxury brand looking for strategy or design that goes beyond the banal, get in touch via hello at matchreform.com and chat to one of our consultants. And so, until next time. <laughs>